great, great questions. Look, and there's so much, you know, as you know, and many, many listening would know, there's so much written in relation to leadership and, and increasingly so leadership in times of crisis. You know, in, in my research and my work, I'm fascinated by that area. And I think, you know, I can say this both from a, from a personal perspective, but also very much from, you know, what is the, what's the evidence, what's the, the research say? And I think, you know, typically as, an, as employees and staff, we will look to our leadership for direction, for assurance. You know, I, I got to feel assured um, and truth. You know, so if we think about that, you know, I want you to be transparent with me. I don't want you to lie to me. I don't want you to tell me you can fix it if you don't know. But I want you to tell me, and I want you to, to I want you to show me that you're going to give it everything you have, and you're going to pull out all the stops to do that. And you know, there's there's quite a you know the, the four sort of key areas. The four this is a, a Gallup study showed that there were four universal needs that um, as followers or as staff we have of our leaders in times of crisis, and that's trust, compassion, stability, and hope. Run Your Life Podcast with host Andy Vasily. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Run Your Life Podcast. And as always, thank you very much for tuning in to any episode that you can. I really do appreciate your time and energy. The whole idea behind this podcast is to share stories of different people from the world of education and beyond who strive for both personal and professional excellence in their life. The people that I have on my show have a deep understanding of their craft and approach the work that they do through the lenses of compassion, empathy, hope, and leading with a specific vision in order to make a difference to those who they serve on a daily basis. In today's episode, I feel very fortunate to have Dr. Claire Dallet on my show. As the theme of this new podcast series is In Times of Uncertainty, it is the perfect time to have Claire on the podcast, as the work that she does is in the area of risk management. As the director of Risk Resolve, an Australian-based consultancy, Claire and her team have provided proactive and reactive risk and crisis management services for over 100 schools and organizations across Australia and internationally since 2011. Claire has a PhD in engineering psychology and a master's in risk, crisis, and disaster management. In today's episode, Claire provides deep insight into the key factors necessary for schools to navigate their way through the current public health crisis in a way that not only prioritizes the mental health and well-being of all stakeholders in the organization, but to also optimize organizational structures to ensure the schools can adapt and be flexible in this very important time. Claire has a beautiful spirit about her, and what is clear in this conversation is the passion that she has for helping people and organizations thrive through challenge and adversity. She is a difference maker in the field, and it was an honor to have her on my podcast. If you are a school leader in need of support during this difficult time, 
I encourage you to reach out to Claire and her team to find out how her organization, Risk Resolve, might assist your organization through these challenging times. Without further ado, my episode with Dr. Claire Dallet. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, Claire, it's uh, really good to have you on the podcast, and the world is small indeed, so you and I have been connected really through our consulting work and a common school that we do work for in, in Asia. So again, it's great to have you on the show and to connect with you during this uh, very important time in human history. Thanks, Andy. I appreciate it. So just to give the, the listeners some context, I just want to start because you've got a really interesting story. You've lived and worked and, and been around the world, but can you give the listeners some context by sharing with them a little bit of who you are, where you're from, and the work that you do? Absolutely. Um, yeah, look, I've been very lucky and very grateful for the, uh, the life that I've led to date. I grew up in Northern Ireland um, during the Troubles, so I certainly got a good indication of what challenging times were like. And uh, I left there to go to the big, uh, big wide world when I was 18 and went to the U.S. and uh, got involved in Camp America over there. And that was really, I suppose, a foundational experience for me in education. And it helped me realize that for me, outdoor education and working with young people in the outdoors was, was something that I really wanted to make a, a living from. So I, I worked there uh, and lived there for a number of years before uh, finishing my undergrad studies in, in Wales and in Canada. And after that, I was very lucky to get the opportunity to, um, to head south, to head down under into Australia, where I've spent the last um, 20 years of my life. Great, great. So, yeah, very, uh, very well-traveled. And we talked before we hit record, we talked about you spending some time at Trent University in Canada and, and then some of the, the, the work that you've done. And I guess I want to jump into specifically the work that you do. So can you share more with the listeners uh, the work that you're doing and what it focuses on? Absolutely. So, yeah, when I started off in outdoor education, I was, um, we kind of, those of us who work in the field kind of joke that we've been cold, wet, tired, and hungry a number of times. And mm-hmm. I, uh, it got to the point where um, I, I became super interested at a time, this was about 25 years ago, at a time in an area that most people would think is quite dry of risk management. And back then, there was very few people involved in outdoor ed specifically looking or working in this area. There just weren't the jobs available. So um, as I mentioned before, I I got the opportunity to come to Australia and became the risk manager of a large not-for-profit organization called the Outdoor Education Group. And that organization, I still work there today, and we work with um, some 50,000 young people a year from across Australia. So my role there right now specifically looks at uh, and is involved in research. I ended up going back to university and did a master's degree in risk crisis and disaster management. And then a number of years ago, uh, started a PhD in um, engineering psychology. So I became really interested, I suppose, in how do we design systems that optimize human well-being and, and performance. And that's really uh, the work that I do today with uh, schools and organizations around the globe. Oh, that's amazing. And when you think about the the avenue that you went down, ultimately where this led you, and you talk about the psychology and the well-being, are those themes that resonated with you from, from the time that you were young? Uh, absolutely. They, they really did. You know, from a 13-year-old in a canoe 
um, speaking to, you know, I was brought up Irish Catholic and speaking in a canoe or sitting in a canoe with a, an Irish Protestant um, was something that I, you know, I realised at the time the power of, of the outdoors and of a well-facilitated program to have an impact on, you know, it was really the first time I realised that, wow, we're, we're actually pretty, pretty similar, we're not that different. And I think what got me specifically, I suppose, into sort of risk management and, and optimising performance was, unfortunately, it was from things going wrong, you know, some experiencing incidents or friends experiencing incidents and how do we how do we learn from those in a way um, that will really make a difference across the whole system as opposed to perhaps what we normally see after an incident where it's, you know, blaming the individual or I'm sure you sometimes see, you know, the the headlines of pilot error, you know, yeah. my, my research and the people that I work with, um, I was really interested in how do we take a more up and out, a more systems approach to learning from things that don't go right. Right. And I guess when you think of Australia right now, I didn't plan to ask you this, but when you think about what Australia has gone through in the last year with the forest fires and then now COVID-19, what was your role or, or did you have a role in, in working with people dealing with the forest fires and how it was impacting them? Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and have, you know, being someone, even going back 20 years, you know, someone who came from a country where forest fires were not an issue to Australia, you know, I think I was, I was on the ground a few months and we had a, a terrible fire season. Um, and then all the way through, you know, the area I live in in 2009 was significantly impacted by um, bushfire and then up until this year. So I think, you know, it, it really, t- we expect fire, we expect um, annual bushfires, but certainly the scale that we saw this year was just devastating. It certainly had a major impact on on outdoor education and on, on, on the ability for schools and organizations to conduct their outdoor education programs. Um, and, you know, and it still will, you know, it's What's been so devastating about really this year is we've gone straight from the bushfires, which has had a major impact on the livelihoods of so many and on our wildlife and on our forests, through to the impact of COVID-19. It's, um, it's been a lot. It feels like a very long six months. Yeah. Can you talk about the role of, not the role, but can you talk about collective trauma, collective anxiety? Because, again, people experience individual trauma personalized trauma or personalized anxiety based on their life circumstances, how they grew up, all of that, right? So everybody has different ways of dealing with personal trauma and personal anxiety uh, and personal mental health issues. But when we look at the collective whole, can you talk about collective trauma and collective anxiety and the impact that they have on society? Oh, sure. You know, I think that's something that um, I feel like, you know, and again, you know, someone who's lived in, in a country with, you know, bushfires are, are a way of life. But the, the certainly the, the long term impact on society, on small communities, especially communities living in these areas that, you know, they went from major bushfire to floods, which, you know, probably many of you know, your listeners haven't heard about, but they've been absolutely devastated by floods shortly after the bushfires and now COVID-19. And, you know, I suppose in one way there, there absolutely is that collective trauma and it becomes part of the psyche. But then, you know, I've been reading a lot recently on, on this notion of collective resilience. Yeah. And so, you know, that kind of attitude of, 
where in crises we actually find probably opposite, I suppose, to what we think, which is that actually there's an attitude of mutual helping and an attitude of unity in the middle of, of perceived and actual danger. And so, you know, that's really what I've seen, I suppose, in the communities in Australia and, I'm, you know, and certainly in, in working with, you know, um, schools around the world during this, you know, um, horrendous situation is that there is a real attitude of unity and coming together and working together to solve it, which in some ways is probably, it can be a surprise, but certainly in my experience of, of crises and, and disasters over the last number of years, it's quite common to see communities come together. Yeah, and that's one of the things about optimism. And I'm currently doing a, a, a course on the science of resilience from Penn State University. Mm-hmm. And, sure. And it's going really in depth into optimism versus pessimism, you know, mm-hmm. and that people either think I'm a pessimist or I'm an optimist, really, right? And a lot of people right. that are pessimists, they can absolutely train themselves in the skill of being more optimistic. It's a trainable skill. And one of the things I've learned is in terms of optimism, it's this idea of global versus local, stable versus unstable, internal versus external. So somebody who's more of a pessimist would would look at things as being global, like there's nothing they can do about it. It's beyond their control. Stable versus unstable is it's very stable. Again, returning back to there's nothing I can do about it. Doesn't matter what I do, nothing's going to change versus internal versus external, which is all about external. It's, it's beyond them. But when we flip it to say it's local, stable, and internal, we're actually looking at what is within our control and that we can train ourselves to be more optimistic. What are some skills, before we get into the rest of the podcast, what are some, some things that individuals can do right now to better train themselves in this moment of crisis? Oh, great point. It's, um, you know, it, it's in, certainly in my experience in working with organizations who both in a proactive and a reactive sense, so proactive, how do you plan for, you know, how you respond and how your school and organization responds when things go wrong, as well as reactive, you know, okay, so something's occurred, you know, what, what do we do here? And for me, and, you know, there's some overriding, I suppose, concepts or principles that, like, in, in certainly personally that I try and live by as well as in my work is, you know, we've probably all heard this, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. You know, I think that's very, very real and, and probably no, no more so than really COVID-19. You know, this is a long term. This is, um, this is going on for a while. And, and if we think about that, you know, certainly the things that I think have been shown to be helpful for this is routine, routine, routine. You know, what are the things that I can control? Um, and we know that when we don't feel in control, we get anxious, we get scared, we get fearful. When that occurs, you know, we can um, our amygdala can be hijacked. We're in a we're in a response mode, and obviously, we know that our brains and, and our bodies don't respond well um, to being in that phase for a long time. So, you know, I, I often think about. Um, I used to, to volunteer when I worked in the U.S. at a school called the Shackleton School. And I think a lot of Ernest Shackleton, you know, and in these periods, what did he do in 1915 when they were stuck on Elephant Island? You know, they were, they you know, in one hand, a number of years before, um, you know, a similar thing had happened and, and lives were lost. 
But, you know, Sir Ernest and his crew, all 28 of them, survived. You know, why did they survive? Because uh, they had a leader who demonstrated, you know, the importance of routine, get up every day, show up, have socialization, go to the officer's mess, share a meal. Things that in many ways you could probably um, think, you know, what's the point? We're never going to get off of here or is this thing ever going to be over? And I suppose I often think about his leadership and, and really what would that look like today if we were to apply those same principles? And I think there's lots of, there's lots of um, resources out there about the importance of routine, the importance of socialising, albeit through a screen, mm-hmm. maintaining connection, maintaining hope. Um, so I really agree with you, Andy, about, you know, we can, we can flip it. It's just going to take some work and it's going to take some support. Yeah, and that's, I think, what I want to emphasize is that resilience and optimism are trainable skills. You're not born with these things. You spend time developing them, which requires a a great sense of self-awareness. And that's the first step, being self-aware of your habitual response patterns. And, for example, today I felt a bit anxious this morning. Um, I went out for a little run. I came home. I was trying to do something IT-related, and I, I failed three times in a row. And it took about 40 minutes and I was pissed off. I was, I was upset. And then I was just on the verge of, of defeating this IT problem when my son came down and wanted to make himself breakfast and he needed help. So it disrupted the flow that I was in. So then I realized he's going to need my help. I have to get up. I'm going to have to stop what I'm doing. I went into the kitchen. I was frustrated. I kind of like he knew I was frustrated. I didn't mean to take it out on him. And, sure. and I said, I'll take care of it. I'll make you breakfast. And then I, I, and I felt this, I really felt this sense of frustration. And right. again, drawing myself into, well, this is how I'm feeling in the moment. I know that there are strategies that I can apply right now to better put this situation into perspective. And it's like really being self-aware, being aware of how we're feeling in our habitual response patterns. So is that something that it, it aligns with the work you're doing? Oh, 100%. You know, just personally, um, you know, I, I was sort of chuckling when I was hearing your story because I think whatever's going on around the, around the world, it was um, it was really similar. You know, I feel like personally I've been doing really well up until this point. You know, woke up this morning. I could feel it. And, you know, your self-awareness point I think is crucial. If we can understand better how we tap into that. You know, I think I started to feel a bit like, ugh, yesterday. Whereas today, you know, I woke up and I went, you know what, I'm going to have to take some control of this. I got myself up. I got, you know, my, uh, my bike gear on. I said, you know what? I need to go for a ride. I need to get out. I need to get some fresh air because if I don't, I know what's going to happen. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, you know, it was that, um, and, and, for, and whether that's bike riding or whether it's knitting or writing or reading or getting some fresh air, I think that the signs, if we can tap into those, they are, you know, I, I would go so far to say, you know, from, from the research and the importance of this is that they're, they're absolutely, they're crucial. You know, this, again, as we go back to, it's a marathon, not a sprint. We, we have to listen to the signs and we have to give ourselves a break as well, that we will have those days where it's a lot harder than others, but that we do have some control. And the research is very clear on that. Yeah, exactly. And the idea of self-compassion and, and uh, yeah. self-forgiveness and really understanding uh, more just making these daily ha- habits and routines, getting these in place, and then 
being aware of, of what we're thinking. And one of the things when you were describing that collective anxiety, you know, when you were talking about the collective anxiety and the collective trauma, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think of also like the body's response system of, of spiking cortisol and adrenaline and norepinephrine, these things that yeah. put us into fight or flight mode, right? Um, right, absolutely. And that literally like there is so so much science right now related to the power of the breath and yes and just by accessing by consciously accessing so when you're self-aware and you realize that you're starting to get a spiral a little bit or as you say feel a bit anxious or or whatever it is by recognizing that moment and then tapping into the breath and i think the science shows that if you can make the exhale longer than the inhale that it takes something like 18 full, deep, and spacious breaths to tap into the parasympathetic nervous system, which is obviously the, yes. the, the relax, I'm safe, not, not the relax, but more I'm safe kind of system. Absolutely. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit mm-hmm. about that and, and anything you want to say about that idea of you know, um, reducing uh, cortisol and adrenaline? Absolutely. Like I think... Um, you know, it's interesting. I'd probably, I'd probably be one of the first to say that's an area I really struggle with, and I and I have struggled with. You know, it's quite interesting. I'm a, I'm a sort of go go go. Um, you know, on, on, and then completely flat out. And so it's either you know it's either fully on or fully off. And for me, that's been one of the most, I suppose, in a way, humbling um, areas that I've had to really focus on as to how to become a better leader. Um, a better researcher, a better tra- uh, practitioner is how do I remember to breathe? You know, and that's that's something that I've tried to really focus on through my bike riding, um, through, you know, being outside, you know, in for five, hold for five, out for five, you mm-hmm. know. So I, I really, um, I'm, I try and break it down into really simple and then go, in many ways, go easy on myself. But it's, um, I, I'd be the, um, yeah, I'd be fibbing if I said I found that, um, easy, but the research on it is just—it's astounding how, how for so little, um, you know, um, cost the impact that you get from it, the benefit benefit from it is just astounding and significant. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, I want to take this time now to segue into. So, you sent me uh, an article. So now I really want to dive into the work that you're doing and. You sent me this great article that you've recently... When did you write this article? Oh, this would have been uh, about a week ago, a week and a half ago. So in many ways, I think with COVID-19, we'll find that we could probably add to this by 50% um, just by how quickly the situation is is, um, evolving. Right. So again, a lot of the work that you're doing um, around risk and resolve is with international schools around the world, as well as other organizations, I'm sure. But... For the purpose of this podcast, I really want to focus on your work in regards to um, schools, you know, consulting Mm -hmm. with schools around this. So the title of the article is Supporting Your Faculty and Staff During the COVID-19 Pandemic. And I'm just going to read the first sentence and then ask you something about it. So you said, we're living through extraordinary times. The COVID-19 pandemic represents many new and novel challenges for us all specifically faculty and staff working in our schools. So just speak to the first part of the article and and what you mean about new and novel challenges and what those challenges might be. Mm, Sure. You know, I think that the the thing that 
a lot of my work in schools has been around primarily um, supporting schools to plan and to ensure that their their processes for off-site, so you know, outdoor education programs, overseas expeditions, school tours, etc., that they've got good good proactive and reactive risk and crisis management strategies. And in many ways, what COVID nineteen represents is is something that almost it certainly doesn't throw all those things out the window, but it certainly forces us to really look at back to that um, marathon, not a sprint. That the, And the big thing that comes out with COVID-19 for the, the novelty of this is that um, certainly with some of the, the schools I'm working with in Asia, you know, they're almost, they're, they're writing the rule book. It's not clear what the end of this is. Yeah. Um, we're working right now together on, you know, um, you know, planning for the reopening of, of the school. But seriously, we, we, we don't, you know, there's not somewhere I can go and Google and go, tell me how I should do this or tell me what, there, what should be in place. It's literally doing the best job you can with the resources and the information you have. And that really, the novelty of that in schools is that that requires quite a different way of thinking. It's, it's not necessarily just a top-down approach. It's more broad. Um, it's more wide in its scope. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I worked at, uh, my wife and I and uh, the boys, uh, we were at the Nanjing International School in China before. Oh, sure. Yep. Are you you're familiar with that school? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So really good school. And they, you know, shut down right away. And they're just reopening now. So they started with grade 9 and 12, I think, at the beginning of last week. Uh, elementary school's not in, and they're just doing this slow, I call it a soft opening, whatever you want. But again, there, as you say, there's no blueprint for this. It's, it's in live time. Leaders are having to make decisions for the best interest of everybody in the organization. So it's a really difficult thing for leaders and, and educators to, to go through during this time. And moving down into the article, you say, um, I just want to read this part. However, what we do know for sure is that how we care for and support our staff and faculty now will greatly influence how well they and our schools recover from the COVID-19 crisis. So just speak a little bit to that. Yeah, I think uh, this is quite a well-known sort of concept, I guess, in crisis management, which is, you know, it's, it's not always the crisis or what's seen as the causes of the crisis that will determine the long-term outcome or the long-term reputation of the organization involved. It's actually how well, um, how well it, it appears and how well people feel they've been treated, how well um, the organization has come across. And so, you know, how caring, how, how um, you know, gracious have they been? How have they spoken of the people involved, for example? How have they come across? Have they taken a sort of, it's, it's you know, not our fault versus a, you know, we're terribly and deeply sorry about what happened and we're going to do everything we can to try and address what happened here. And I suppose I think of that very clearly in these situations. You know, it's, I think there's an old saying, I can't remember exactly, but, you know, people always remember how well you've cared for them. Yeah. And in this case, it's very much in schools, you know, um, you know, we, we will, schools and, and parents and faculty will remember how well the leadership um, has treated them, how they've come across, how honest and, and transparent they've been. And I think, you know, I think you'll list, um, you know, your listeners and, and, you know, we would have heard of Jacinda Ardern, you know, the prime minister of, of New Zealand. Yeah. 
And I think she's been, you know, she's been really held up here as a leading light, I suppose, in her humanity. And that, that didn't start with COVID-19. You know, it went right back to the Christchurch um, massacre and, and when lots of people lost their lives and she showed her humanity. Uh, you know, I heard an amazing comment the other day where, you know, some New Zealanders said, you know, we all trust in your decision-making decision um, processes because we trust in your values. So I think what that tells me is that, you know, schools, for example, who, who go back to their values and lead with their values as their anchors will come out of this and will be remembered, um, I think, and lauded by their faculty and, and students and staff and parents in a way that is, um, I think, is a lot more meaningful and transparent than potentially if, if we take a top-down autocratic approach to this. Yeah, that's such a great point and everything you said there. And when I think of what you just said, I think about the importance of when we have a, our own personal philosophies that we try to live by, that to be truly aligned, we have to ensure that our, our thoughts, our actions, and our words connect and are aligned Absolutely. on an ongoing basis. And if there is misalignment, we will feel it. And through reflection, we might realize that we fell short in our thoughts or we fell short in our words or we fell short in our actions and then figure out how to steady the course to get back on track to align our thoughts, behaviors and our actions, right? Or our thoughts, Absolutely. our words and our actions. So can you just speak more to like in, in difficult, dire times, which this is, how do you actually... How do you build the skills within your organization to live your mission statement and to align thoughts, actions, and words? It's the classic, isn't it? It sounds so simple, and yet it's one of the most challenging things I think that, that leadership and organizations have when things get tough. You know, our, our automatic sort of response can be to pull back, you know, to close in, to, to tighten up, and whereas actually what we need from our leadership in you know, times of crisis is trust, you know, compassion, stability, we need hope. And that's where we look, you know, we look to our leaders for that. And I think, you know, I want to know, and, and, and the research is very clear on this, you know, we want to know that our leadership has a plan. We, we don't need to know that, you know, um, you know, we, we don't need to know exactly the, the ins and outs of that plan, but we need to know that there's a clear plan. We need to know that someone in our leadership and our leadership teams are thinking about that. Um, you know, I want to, we know from the research again that we want to be kept informed. You know, we want to have a connection with our, our immediate leader, our line manager, our supervisor. You know, and I think that's probably one of the, the most um, important yet probably least well done aspects of leadership in times of crisis is that, um, you know, my immediate supervisor actually shows me that they care for me. You know, whether that's a, a one-minute conversation every two days to check in and actually genuinely ask me how am I going, especially in this time of COVID-19 where it's, we, we can't have that, you know, connection, physical connection. And so it's quite difficult. Um, it can be harder to do that. But we certainly know that, you know, we know that a lot of the research is clear on the number one reason, you know, people leave a job is because of that relationship with their direct supervisor. It's typically not the money. It's not you know, all those other things, their hygiene factors as, a, as an old friend just to call them for me, you know, to me. It's that relationship that I've got. So, 
as leaders and as, as school leaders, how do we make sure that we're still maintaining those connections when there is so much else going on um, and there's so many other needs to be met that that can be the first thing to go. Yeah. It's, um, it's vital. Yeah, for sure. That, that was well said. And, you know, I think about this is kind of a side note, but I think it's connected. And it's this idea. I, I read some research uh, I I, no, I didn't read it. I listened to a podcast and I heard about some research being done amazingly just since the crisis kind of started in January. And there's been a lot of talk about using the term social distancing. So what this research group did, they said, that's the wrong language to use. We need to change it to physical distancing because there's there's no time more than the present time where we need social connection. So social distancing can imply social isolation. So by just changing the way the language we use and referring to it as physical distancing can have, I don't want to say a profound impact, but it can positively impact people's mental well-being and mental health. So that's what you're saying about line managers checking in. You know, the physical distance is there but the social connection remains and it remains strongly in place to give people that sense of belonging and significance during this difficult time, right? Absolutely right. You know, that, that's, the, that's the crucial part. And then, you know, then you have, if we get that right, and we, you know, if we, if we really get that right, we have the added um, knock-on effect of you'll have people, you know, we all know what it's like to feel cared for, to feel valued, to feel like we belong, um, to feel, you know, think about what it would feel like if your principal or deputy principal or head of, you know, school rang up and said, you know, Andy, tell me how you feeling. Like, I, I can't imagine how difficult it must be for you. Yeah. Tell me how you're going, you know. And you can imagine what that would feel like. Like, I, I almost get goosebumps when I think about, wow, someone someone actually is thinking about me. What, what does that do in return? It actually... I have more discretionary, I will provide generally more discretionary effort on behalf of my employer, on behalf of my organization, because I know I'm genuinely cared about, I'm valued. And so, you know, there's a whole lot in that as well, that it's um, here you have a team of people as a leader, you have a team of people right behind you, ready to support you, ready to, to do what it takes. And I think, you know, this, this type of, you know, COVID-19 is going to take a lot. One person at a school is not going to fix this. Um, yeah. It's going to take a, a whole effort. Yeah, and it's that knock-on effect and that ripple effect that can spread throughout the whole organization. And mm-hmm. moving into um, the middle part of your article, this is what I was really interested in because I it kind of opened my eyes to the emotional responses that people are experiencing. And you included in your article um, something from the Interagency Standing Committee. Um, So what I'm reading here is that this was created by the United Nations General Assembly, the International Agency Standing Committee. And this committee has provided some important insight into what likely and common responses individuals may have to the COVID-19 pandemic. So can you really dive into that now and talk about the, the common emotional responses that people are experiencing during this, this time? Sure, you bet. Like, you know, I think, again, this is, um, you know, I, I bet that when we hear these, um, some of the work that the, you know, the UN General Assembly, the Interagency Standing Committee has done, 
Um, some, you know, when I started looking into this, it was quite shocking, but it makes a lot of sense. You know, for many of us, we, we feel that fear of falling ill as well. You know, we have, uh, what was it, you know, one and a half million cases around the world. Of course, we feel like we're, we're you know, potentially and we're, we're significantly at risk of that. So we ourselves feel fear of falling ill and dying. You know, this fear of uh, falling ill and dying ourselves is extremely real. Um, you know, where many of us, uh, we're avoiding approaching health facilities, you know, or hospitals, for example, due to the fear of being infected while we're there. So we're avoiding those, which obviously can then have an impact on potentially some underlying health conditions that we may have that we need help with and can exacerbate that. Um, many of us have a fear of losing livelihoods, you know, not being able to work during the isolation we're in and of being dismissed from work. You know, and I think from in school environments with that, certainly, especially those folks who aren't face, um, you know, front facing in terms of teaching or directly teaching. There's certainly fears there. A lot of, um, you know, our independent schools are certainly worried about enrollments in number in the years to come, in the months to come. So there's a, a big fear around, well, what does that mean for my job? Um, we're certainly, you know, the, the social exclusion and the fear of being potentially placed in quarantine um, has a major impact, you know, and that sort of fear of exclusion and social exclusion is, is very, very strong. Um, the, the standing committee also identified this notion or this fear of feeling extremely powerless in protecting our loved ones, you know, and fear of losing loved ones. Like I know, you know, I feel part of me, I've lived in Australia for 20 years, but I'm terrified for my family in Ireland because I can't get there. I have no idea when I'll be able to get there. So I know for many of us involved in international education, that's a big concern. Um, you know, there's potentially fear of, um, you know, our, our family and friends, um, you know, not being cared, so people refusing to care for them um, because others have been taken into, you know, our families have been taken into quarantine. Mm. We were just talking about that today at one of um, the schools I'm working with. This notion of helplessness, boredom, you know, loneliness, you know, we have a lot of people afraid of, and quite a lot of people, you know, one in four, you know, will have a mental health condition um, you know, in terms of, you know, and so a lot of us are concerned about, will this push me, um, will this will this lead to my family, myself, um, having quite a serious mental health condition because of the situation I'm in? So it's definitely, um, there are definitely some real concerns and fears that are, are realities for many of us and for our families. And yet, whilst all that occurs, we're still, we're still working. We're still trying to Deliver. We're still trying to carry on somewhat as normal. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot to handle. Yeah, yeah, and what you're saying really strikes a chord with me because I was I was almost killed in an accident in 2011 in Cambodia. So I had put my oh, hand wow. through a, a bus window. The bus didn't have safety glass. It was just like wine glass, right. and it completely severed the ulnar artery in my left wrist, and I almost bled out and died. And I had, um, my arm was uh, in a tourniquet. Uh, they had no painkillers. They went in with um, arterial clamps to kind of mm. clamp off the arteries. Right. So it oh was very, goodness. very traumatic. And, Absolutely. And after, it was about four, four and a half hours, they found a retired Scottish orthopedic surgeon who had created a charity doing um, volunteer surgeries on landmine victims, and he was in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. 
at the time wow. when he was usually out of, in the pr- province areas. So they yeah. rushed they rushed me to him, and he was able to kind of save my arm at minimum. Wow. Um, oh so yeah. I know that after that, I mean, that was 2011. That was nine years ago, and I still my hand only functions at you know 60 percent of what it once did. Mm-hmm. But I got you know a lot of the strength back, and it doesn't stop me sure. from doing anything. But I definitely went through post-traumatic stress disorder. And mm-hmm. I've realized that over the last probably two or three weeks, I feel that I'm handling the situation well, to, as well right. as can be expected. I'm not going to say I'm doing a great job. Okay. Like anybody yeah. else, I'm doing the best with my coping skills. And, yes. you know, what I've learned about um, well-being and mental health and all of that. But I've had before I've realized that right before I'm falling asleep, like the last few weeks, I've had flashbacks for the first time mm-hmm. in a couple of years. And it's just that momentary kind of, maybe it's when I'm on the cusp of, of sleeping, I'm just about to fall asleep. So you're just in that, that state where you're about to fall asleep. I've had these momentary flashbacks, not to the accident itself, but just to disturbing thoughts, whatever it is random thoughts you know and then I kind of catch it and I wake up and then I go back you know I I fall asleep but I've realized that's probably past trauma trauma the the trauma I went through with that accident reliving that a little bit because of this so what's happening with a lot of people is that I think subconsciously traumas that we've dealt with from the past are starting to surface right yes and that's I, right. I think it's important for people listening to understand that that's very natural. 100%. That's right. You know, there's a lot of discussion around that. Um, and there's a lot There's a lot more being written as obviously this, you know, situation evolves. And, you know, I was reading the other day about, you know, it was, it was uh, you know, more people are, um, are reporting dreams. You know, they're dreaming more. Yeah. Um, and some of those, you know, and, and, and obviously some of those are from and, and those um, flashbacks from past traumas, you know, and the dreams can be certainly can be quite disturbing. Mm. And there's, you know, a lot of a lot of folks are in the, you know, that part of psychology that are really, you know, there is a, a, a reliving that trauma and a fear of, of what what again, you know, what's going to happen again. And that, you know, massive uncertainty that arises from, you know, for. For all of us, um, the majority of us who are, you know, we're not around for the last pandemic, you know, so there's a lot of uncertainty around, well, what does this mean? What's going to happen? Is it, um, is it ever going to end? Um, what if all those things that, you know, the interagency has identified, standing committee, all that real fear um, that we're feeling on top of just trying to continue um, yeah, is super, super challenging and no wonder it's bringing up past traumas. Yeah, for sure. And we we read some, my wife and I do a lot of mindfulness well-being work. And one of the things that we've been listening to, there's there's a um, podcast called uh, 10% Happy. Have you heard it? I have heard yeah. it, yes. Yeah. So what he's offering right now, it's amazing. Every night at 10 p.m. Eastern time in the States, he's offering a free meditation. So he brings on a meditation expert. And right. so it's 10 p- no, it's 10 p.m. Saudi time. So I think it's 3 p.m. Eastern time. And these okay, are recorded. Sure. These are recorded on, on YouTube. 
So he has the meditation or mindfulness expert. They talk for a bit. Then they lead people through a five-minute meditation. And a lot of the, the people on the show have been sharing meta, loving kindness, and this idea that these things that you can say to yourself, you know, just five minutes alone where you're actually wishing goodwill on others in your life and others around the world. Yeah. And it can be as, as simple as saying, may you be safe from, from harm and may you be vitally yes. strong. It's this idea of extending loving kindness to others and then turning it to yourself. So for me, when I've experienced that reliving that trauma, then I just immediately go into one of those loving kindness exercises and mm -hmm. repeat a few yep. few things. You know, may you be yes. safe from harm and vitally strong. Uh, may you experience love in this moment. Absolutely. And whatever yeah. it is you're saying, then you turn it back to yourself. And, right. and right. It's, it's a nice way just to reframe and in the moment. And again, it goes back to self-awareness. You're realizing what's happening and you're embedding a strategy to, to deal with it in the moment. Very much so. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's, it's, you can almost imagine it, you know, you can see it as extending, extending that kindness out and then, you know, gently bringing it back around to yourself. Yeah. And how important that is. Yeah. yeah absolutely. It's so important. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of, um, it reminds me of something we've, um, we've been doing with, um, with one of the schools I've been working with in Asia and we meet every day, um, and we meet for an hour at least every day. The task force is nine of us in this group, and they're from all from across the school. And, you know, we um, at the end of every week, it's, you know, it's quite intense, and it's a lot of work, and you can imagine this is happening all over the world right now in schools. But really just taking a few moments to actually share, it, it must be the outdoor educator in me, but to share what's been our highlight of the week. You know, what am I proud of mm -hmm. about what I've helped to contribute to this group through the week? And I think it's important as educators that we don't lose touch of that. You know, it's, it's not just about us, you know, facilitating that for our students, but it's actually as a, as a team, as a community, how do we make sure we're, you know, we're keeping the main thing the main thing, which is that human connection. And especially in such a time of, of real, you know, real uncertainty and real fear. Um, we got to keep bringing it around and keep, uh, and it and it takes you know it just takes one person to maybe ask that question in our, our various school communities and it can be very powerful. And that ties into positive psychology and the work of Dr. Martin Seligman, who talks Absolutely. about the power of gratitude and and the power mm -hmm. of recognizing what's actually working, rather than why is everything so screwed up, right? That's and, right. And shifting right. the focus and that becomes that what I talked about earlier, that local, unstable and internal, that nothing is concrete right now and that there are things that we can do. And that is a perfect example of recognizing the good within us and the good within mm -hmm. others. And it's very, very important. And when we think of the, the employees now, and so this is a two, I guess, two-part question really, but when we look at leadership, and how leadership is leading right now and what it is the people in the organization need the most. And, and you've already mentioned it, but let's go back to it again to really emphasize this, okay? So I wanna know what those things are, what, what are the needs that em employees have right now 
And then the second part of the question is, what do leaders need to let go of within themselves during this very difficult time? Oh, great, great questions. Look, and there's so much, you know, as you know, and many, many listening would know, there's so much written in relation to leadership and, and increasingly so leadership in times of crisis. You know, in, in my research and my work, I'm fascinated by that area. And I think, you know, I can say this both from a from a personal perspective, but also very much from, you know, what is the what's the evidence? What's the, the research say? And I think, you know, typically as an as employees and staff, we will look to our leadership for direction, for assurance. You know, I, I got to feel assured um, and truth. You know, so if we think about that, you know, I want you to be transparent with me. I don't want you to lie to me. I don't want you to tell me you can fix it if you don't know. But I want you to tell me, and I want you to, to I want you to show me that you're going to give it everything you have, and you're going to pull out all the stops to do that. And you know, there's there's quite a you know the, the four sort of key areas. The four this is a, a Gallup study showed that there were four universal needs that um, as followers or as staff we have of our leaders in times of crisis, and that's trust, compassion, stability, and hope. You know, and uh, I think if we think about those, you know, they really do stand out. You know, I, I, I want to trust you. I need to have trust in you that you're going to do the right thing. What helps that, I think, is back to the Jacinda Ardern. You know, I want to trust. I have trust that you will be um, the decisions that are made by our leadership are anchored to our values. And, um, you know, compassion, I want you to be human. And I want you to show compassion. I want to have stability. You know, and even if that's difficult, especially for everything we just talked about, you know, how hard it can be when, you know, the, 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 you know, the, um, the limbic part of our brain or the amygdala gets hijacked and we're in fight or flight. You know, it's as hard for a leader as it is for anyone. But I want to know that, you know, I, I can look to you for stability and I want to have hope. And I think those are the those are the really four key things that stand out, certainly from, you know, and I'm sure there's many others, but for me, they're the ones that stand out and, and obviously from, from this study that we've been looking at. And I think, you know, when we think about those, um, I think we can tell, you know, certainly from, from someone who's had a number of leaders and, and watched a lot of leaders following, we can tell when there's empathy, we can tell when people are being transparent, we can tell when we're being sold aligned, when there might not be anything underneath that. And I think we can tell very quickly between authentic leadership and, and, you know, inauthentic leadership. Yeah, for sure. You know, it becomes very obvious, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so what do leaders need to let go of? The second part of the question, let go of within themselves during this time. Uh, such a great question. You know, you, you know, I think on one hand we could say, you know, you got to let go of the ego. You got to let go of the fact that, um, very, very easy to say, hard to do. But I think we've got to let go of the fact that we have all the answers because we don't. And I think we've got to, you know, a good example, literally less than an hour ago, I was working with um, with a school um, on one of our daily, daily catch-ups and we spent all this time, there was a group of eight of us last week, spent all this time working on a policy in response to covid We put it out there. We'd done a, a process which we call red teaming, which was essentially take out the individual and we really tried to just um, break break this policy to pieces you know really identify where its vulnerabilities and weaknesses would be so that it wasn't um, it was we took the focus off the person and said let's focus on the policy so we did a lot of really good work on that and interestingly uh, a staff member who had a teacher who had nothing to do with the policy development 
had a look at it over the weekend and said, oh, you guys have forgotten about this. And, you know, it was something that would have completely improved the quality of the policy. And what was wonderful about that and working with that school was that the, the deputy, you know, the assistant head of that school had no ego, was able to say, isn't that awesome that here, let's make sure we add this in. They didn't get defensive about it. They didn't get egotistical about it and say, well, who do you or what do you know? They opened it with open arms and said, that's exactly what we want. And I think, you know, I think that's what leaders, the defensiveness and the ego and the need to be right are, uh, are probably three of the biggest crutches, uh, I think, of leaders in times of crisis. Which is going to, those exact things will reveal themselves right. over time, right? When a, when a leader leads in that way, they might put on a certain face, but it will become very apparent very quickly that it's, it's a lot of show rather than yeah. a lot of depth behind it. And there's that sense of vulnerability as well. And Brene Brown's work is all about vulnerability and shame resilience. And it's that idea exactly that that leader who accepted that idea in accepting that idea and recognizing we didn't think of that. That is a vulnerability in action because you're saying we don't have it all right here. Vulnerability isn't all fluffy and open up your whole life to other people. Vulnerability is exactly what you just said. Yeah, exactly right. And, and, you know, what a gift. If you think about that, you know, what a gift that, that, you know, because really for every every teacher who suggested that, that teacher is going to probably share that with two or three other people who are then going to share that with two or three other people. And, you know, imagine what the story would be if it was the other way around, if it was a defensive, you know, um, egotistical leader who you know who who responded in the opposite way, and so you can see there you know we you know in education we call them teachable moments you know and this it's almost flip it around it's a learnable moment for all yeah, of us yeah. and how can we be how can we remain in this long drawn out process how can we be remain remain open to those learnable moments because they're there they're even through the screen they're there every day. Yeah, yeah, and returning back to those four key areas, trust, compassion, stability, hope, um, I'm reading a book right now called Transcendence by Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. It's a new book, and it's based on Maslow's work, right? Oh, sure. So it's taking Maslow's work and then looking at the most current, uh, you know, the current research and, and how we can transcend in order to self-actualize. And what he talks about in the opening of the book is that Maslow didn't create the hierarchy. There was no hierarchy. The hierarchy was a marketing move by people trying to push his work into organizations. Back in the day when there was a hierarchy with leadership, top-down, everything was top-down. So that Maslow, was, it was really all of these, the hierarchy of needs, the needs all intertwine. It's not like you meet the need of belonging and then ding, 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 you get to move up a level like it's a video game. So looking at trust, compassion, stability, and hope, they are not in any order and they're very much intertwined and meshed together. That's right. That one simple action by a leader can re- reflect trust, compassion, stability, and hope. 
you don't have Absolutely. to isolate, right? So can you just speak to that? Yeah, I think, you know, you've, you've kind of hit the, the almost the nail on the head of sort of the, the focus of this, you know, um, human factors or systems thinking, you know, if, to look at those in isolation would be obviously would be totally reductionist, you know, it wouldn't make sense. It's just not how the world works. And, you know, we, everything is, um, is, is interrelated, you know, so, um, to break those down, you know, we have the opportunity, and if we look at that from a positive perspective, we have the opportunity every day to have a huge influence, a huge positive, genuine influence by our leadership, by what we say, by what we do, by, how, you know, how we carry ourselves, by how we lead. And, you know, it's it's um, it's not sort of, you know, 9 to 10, I'll show some trust, and 10 to 11, I'll show some compassion. Yeah. It's, it's obviously throughout the day. And, you know, one part of this really stands out for me is, you know, one of the first things we'll do when one of the first things that this type of work, when I'm doing it, when I go into a school. So, for example, with COVID-19 and looking at a response, we'll identify kind of who is in who's in the system, so to speak, who's in the school, who are the actors. And I think in international schools specifically, you know, with with the school that, you know, we've uh, we both know in Asia you know, there were 35 different actor groups within that school. Mm-hmm. And so what, in many ways, probably the, you know, the long way around of, of responding to your first question, Andy, around, you know, how those four things interrelate. And, and they'll obviously change and, and be malleable depending on who you're interacting with and what their specific needs are. Mm-hmm. You know, so for a group of, of um you know, parents from in-country, um, that might be quite different to, for example, faculty who haven't been able, who left when the COVID-19 crisis began and haven't actually been able to get back in the country, which I know are some of the issues for some international schools. Mm-hmm. So how do we help How do we help them be, um, be, be retained as part of our community when they're feeling so isolated? So it's, uh, the, the, as we say in this world, you know, context is everything. And context dependent will determine the, you know the approaches and and how you come across as a leader yeah yeah great i like what you said there and um to segue into the last part of the podcast and you know there's so much more i can i want to talk to you about so maybe we can do a part two at some point but um just to respect your time um i'd like to segue into the last part and then go into where people can find you on social media sure. and how schools might be able to connect with you so what's inspiring you right now uh, to, you know, in your own ways to personally get through this trying time? Wow, uh, great question. Great question. You know, honestly, I think it's, um, as we say, you know, as we're just talking about the learnable moments, I think for me, you know, I, I've been very privileged and very grateful for the opportunities to connect with people from all over the world. Um, who are who are facing the same challenges, um, and if we you know if we flip it, the same opportunities through this horrendous crisis. And you know, I think behind by remembering that behind this, there are a lot of quite sick and quite unwell people, yeah. um, which is which is the tragedy of all of this. That we have lots of people around the world who are doing their utmost, I suppose, to maintain and optimize the well-being of our young people in schools. And I think that's the type of work that fascinates me, that interests me as someone who came from, you know, a conflict zone. I still think about that a lot. And I think about this as, you know, these are the, the, the same types of 
of situations and out of conflict. Um, I have met some of the, you know, most um, amazing friends that are, you know, that last for life. Mm-hmm. So I think in many ways, even though it's, we're, we're conducting this via screen, it's, um, I think that says a lot about, you know, for me, it's, it's maintaining those connections. It's getting outside. It's learning new things, learning new areas, having the time to be able to do that is what's really keeping me going and hope that, you know, hope that maybe this time next year we'll be all traveling again or we'll be all connecting in person and sharing stories. And being incredibly appreciative of being able to do that. Totally. Not taking it for granted again. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So where, Claire, where can people find you now? Let's start with uh, social media and um, maybe a website or whatever. Yeah, so you can find me on uh, on Twitter. That's probably where I spend a fair bit of time. So it's Claire, C-L-A-R-E, no I, Dalit, D-A-L-L-A-T. And that's my, my Twitter handle. Okay, great. So I'm going to include all of that in the show notes. And uh, I really yeah. want to thank you for the time. I'm glad that we connected, Claire. Absolutely. I really enjoyed it, Andy. And um, yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so just stay on the line and then I'm just going to close the show up. Uh, Everybody, thank you very much for listening to this In Times of Uncertainty episode with my guest, Claire Dallet. Dallet, did I say that right? Yeah, Dallet, yeah. Okay, and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Thank you.